Would you let any company you're involved with do business in China? Yes and no. First, we can't decouple and say no business in China, not buying anything from them, not selling anything to them. That would be mutual assured destruction. Anything besides t-shirts and chicken wings, do not get involved with China. Nothing okay. that matters. Not pharmaceuticals, not electronics, because on the one side, you're saying we're becoming dependent on them. The extreme argument for full decoupling is saying you never want to help your enemy. And if you come right out and say China is an enemy, not a rival, you don't want to be buying your steel for your battleships from the country that you're bombing. So if you look at it as true war, I mean, I have the word war in my book for a reason. It's not wireless rivalry. It's yeah, wireless you wars. think it's a war. I get it. It's a war. They certainly think it's a war. We finally are realizing it's a war. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Invested. I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us your core value. Well, Michael, it's really great to be here with you today. Core value. You know, it's not a question I typically get asked during these interviews, but I would probably go with truth because regardless of what your political view is, Regardless of the side you're advocating, if you're sticking to the truth, at least there's an opportunity to have a dialogue and, and respectful uh, discussions and, and get to a productive answer. When you start to move away from truth for whatever reasons people may grasp or hold on to, I think you're uh, heading down a very bad road. Well, we'll come back to that because that's actually maybe a great opening. But before uh, I come back to ask you about truth, uh, let me introduce you to our viewers and listeners John Pelson spent 25 years as an executive at some of the world's largest telecom equipment makers and service providers. He helped create market breakthrough wireless products and solutions. He was vice president of marketing and strategy for Lucent Technologies, which some of us remember, and chief convergence officer at British Telecom, and he drove the company's global wireless strategy. John went to China, saw their telecom equipment companies grow and become world leaders. His observation on China's use of homegrown business giants to advance geopolitical goals formed the basis for his book, Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back. And we'll talk a lot more about that soon. Pelson now counsels technology companies on how to better compete with China and has advised leadership in the United States government and intelligence community on the impact of 5G competition from China. John has a degree in economics from Dartmouth College and an MBA from the Darden School at the University of Virginia. I should point out, by the way, that I took out the application forms for Darden uh, many times and unfortunately never went. John lives with his family in Great Falls, Virginia. You can learn more about John Pelson on Twitter at John Pelson. That's spelled J-O-N-P-E-L-S-O-N. His book, Wireless Words, which I have read and I highly recommend, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back, is available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. John, it's a pleasure to have you here. And you are our first guest kind of doing this. I've had every other guest in studio with me, and this is the first time we'll be doing it uh, across the Atlantic. So thanks for joining. Well, it's, it's great being here. I wouldn't have minded making the trip to Israel for this, but uh, I think the, the technology is a pretty good second choice. I want to go back to the core values stated, which is truth, and ask a somewhat philosophical question. Is there one truth? Well, you have mathematics, you have science, you have physics. So yeah, there's a one truth and you can start diverging from that as you add layers. I suppose you get a little bit further away from pure absolute truth. But if you don't believe there is one truth at any 
level, then I don't suppose you really believe in anything. I want to dig for a second into kind of, uh, you know, the book on, on from this vector of truth before we get to uh, a broader discussion. So in summary, we can say that China uh, embedded other telecom companies, other countries uh, with their 5G technology from Huawei uh, largely, um, and that became a giant, let's call it, uh, espionage operation. That would be the truth as articulated in your book. Simple summary to start. Do you think China views that truth the same way? Well, okay. So if, if you want to use the word there, that's an assertion that's backed by good evidence. Uh, now, is the gear, the 4G and 5G gear in the networks from China? Yes, that's the truth. Does it have the opportunity to send information back to China? Yes, it does. You can prove that mathematically. Are they doing it? Well, in some cases, you can show they did, in which case... I think you're you're getting to a point where you're saying, yes, there have been cases where they've done it. Then you can argue, is that why they installed the gear? And uh, are they doing something nefarious with it? You'd have to dig for evidence there. But again, if you find specific examples with proof and evidence, yeah, you can show pretty conclusively that there was a motive to the deployment of gear, where it went and, and why it was put in. And it was beyond just making money and installing telecom gears to serve customers. Let me give you three minutes to describe the core thesis uh, of your book and much of the evidence uh, that you that you brought quite convincingly, in my opinion, before I kind of dive in and ask some more questions on the topic, the book and the broader policy and other implications. Sure. The thesis of my book got flipped on its head when I started to write the book. I'm a telecom executive. I was going to write about how Bell Labs and Motorola and Nortel invented cellular, went to China to make it cheaper and to sell it into a huge market. And then the Chinese companies with government backing were able to seize that market and put them all out of business and and dominate the market. And I had a conversation with a FBI counterintel officer who said, well, wait a minute, do you know where they've sold their gear in the US? And I said, yeah, Huawei and ZTE, they sell it in the middle of nowhere, Montana, North Dakota. And he said, do you know why? I said, yeah, because the big carriers, AT&T, Sprint, Verizon, government kind of leaned on them and said, we don't recommend you put in that gear. So that's all they could do. He said, no, look where they deployed it. And he had led the FBI's Huawei team. And I looked and they had put their cellular gear around our nuclear missile bases or special operations command, the nuclear sub base. And it was no coincidence. So suddenly the, the thesis flipped. This was not done by China to have an industry champion to advance that champion's economic success around the world. China put $75 billion into Huawei so that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, could extend its power and influence in the world. And a conversation with my old economics professor from Dartmouth, who is now at Duke, made clear that the economics of backing a company today with $75 billion, and, and you're a venture capitalist, you know this, Michael, $75 $75 billion today, and the payoff starts in 10 or 15 years, you will never make that money back. So, so the thesis became, this is an effort to advance Chinese political, geopolitical interests in the world, and their investment in Huawei is about the same as an American investment in an aircraft carrier group. Your ROI is hard to measure in dollars, it's measured in political influence and power. That's really what happened with the Chinese telecom push through the late 90s till today. You know, what's what's interesting about it, by the way, just from a venture capitalist perspective, is the Chinese investment in Huawei put uh, Lucent, Nortel, and others out of business. Uh, that actually took a lot of acquirers out of the market. 
And I think probably also, uh, in addition to kind of extending the CCP's power, uh, stunted investment in telecom companies and in companies that supplied telecom manufacturers because they became fewer and far between. In the late 90s when I got started, there was tons of investment in telecom, but you see very little of it 20 years later because the main acquirers have gone away. Yeah, and, and people realized also that the carriers, the you know British Telecom or Vodafone or, or Orange, AT&T, Verizon, they are not going to put this startup gear in their networks because the, the industry dynamics became such that they were really captured by the last couple people standing. You had Nokia, you had Ericsson, you had the Chinese companies, and they developed a lot of market power over their own customers. And it would not have played well to hear that they were trying some new technology from some startup off in the middle of uh, Cambridge or Silicon Valley or something. One of the things that struck me uh, in your book was the first customer was Saudi Arabia, right? And I think there's a couple of ways to read that. One is they had the money, uh, although the Chinese were subsidizing this. So the other way to think about it is it was like a backwater market and they were desperate to leapfrog, which is I think the narrative you pursued – uh, in the book. Uh, the third way I think perhaps to read it is the Chinese needed to work out the kinks uh, in kind of an outsider market, which wouldn't necessarily be open to U.S. influence. So what do you think it was about Saudi Arabia and how do you think they managed to kind of go from Saudi Arabia, which is not exactly the world's most advanced telecom market, to being able to take over European networks and other networks? I'll go with the uh, kind of the dumb luck on that particular one mm. where the, the Saudi prince was on his world tour uh, and he made a long stop in China. And there's the crown prince, uh, why not to become king? And he wanted to sell oil to China. Uh, he was looking for markets for his product. And he grabbed his assistant and said, tell AT&T at the time, Lucent, uh, that they're in the set, the, the my company at the time was in a $5 billion contract to build out Saudi's telecom network. Tell them to pull one of the Chinese companies in. Tell them to pull Huawei in to their next bid to us. We, we want to do a favor for them so that they'll keep buying our oil or start buying our oil. And it was just that the, the happenstance of that meeting that brought Huawei to the table. It was their first international bid. And I helped, uh, I, I spoke with uh, a gentleman, Colin Golder, who helped them draft that bid. Uh, worked with the chairman, chairwoman then of Huawei, Madam uh, Sun, and they lost their bid. They did not win the Saudi contract. And I'm sure they're never again going to win any Saudi business, right? I'm sure Huawei won't be deploying any equipment in Saudi as, as far as we can see into the future, except I just read, of course, about their huge deal uh, in, over the past year. They, they did take some solace, I'm sure, that even though they lost out on that Huawei bid, they won around $200 billion of other international business over the next couple decades. So it was a, a failed first effort, but it worked out pretty well for Huawei. Yeah. So I just got back from the UAE. Uh, I was there uh, over the last week. There's a lot of Huawei equipment in the UAE, uh, as you probably know. If you are now walking into one of these governments, the Saudis, UAE, European governments, what, what do you tell them to do? Like, here they are. They've got this massive investment in this equipment. What would you tell them to do now? And and, and before you answer that question, um, before we got on air, I said to you, this feels 
one of the things that was jarring about the book, it wasn't like there weren't details that surprised me per se, because you've read about it at this point because of your book in many places. But when you read the kind of tale that you told, this was so premeditated by the Chinese from beginning to end that that it's jarring. This was a plan. It was a 20, 25 year plan with a lot of money behind it. And it's jarring. And you go to some of these telecom companies in uh, the GCC or Europe and, by the way, to their governments, and they're clearly not thinking that long term. There's almost a mismatch here. What, what, what do you go tell people? And, by the way, I think of the UAE as a place that plans for the long term, certainly compared to Israel. You know, one thing that amazes me, as a guy who's purely in, in business side, and now that I find myself advising people in government and in, in the intelligence community, I gave a talk to a large group. Uh, of that included many intelligence officers. I had people come up to me afterwards and say, your book was terrifying. I was thinking, what? How did you, didn't you already know this? I thought I just learned this, you know, all non-classified. I don't have any clearances. The story I told, I think because of the way it was stitched together, made even the intel officers who had access to information I'll never see realize this is what, this is what the plan really was. This is where, if, if you don't understand business, you don't understand how non-business Huawei's efforts really were. Their technology is fine. Their business efforts are rigorous, but it's not business. Uh, you look at UAE deploying sensitive, uh, sophisticated Chinese telecom equipment into sensitive networks. If they think they can go toe-to-toe with China and secure their own network against them. Uh, one senior intelligence official said to me, if you've installed Huawei gear in your network, you don't have to worry about them putting in a back door. You've given them the front door. And it's true. You can encrypt your data. You can encrypt your phone calls. But one thing about telecom networks is there's something called metadata, first of all. And that is when, when you are managing a network, you see who's making a call, to whom, when, is it video, is it voice, is it data, is it an email? You can tell because if it's 12 kilobits, it's probably an email. If it's 40 megabits, it's a video and, and everything in between. You can learn enormous information and you say, yeah, but there's so many calls going on at once. Who in China could sort it out? Well, you know who could sort it out. It's an AI system that looks at it, detects patterns, and starts to connect the dots. You have location information on every mobile phone, which is built into the system. You can't block that from the carrier. The the, the equipment maker who installs the gear never lets go of it. You can't. They have to be able to do software patches and updates, do performance improvements. So Huawei and China and the Chinese government, CCP, is in UAE's network all day, every day, gathering every scrap of data that they can. And as far as the, the idea of encrypted, I don't even believe that either. I think the conversations themselves are likely to be observed and exfiltrated to China. Now, if UAE thinks they have no worry about that and they don't care if China's observing, listening, everything, uh, I think they're kidding themselves. They're, every country has got strategic value to China. And so what would you tell them to do? Well, what I, what I would tell them to do is take the stuff out and put in any other equipment. Now, if they put in Nokia or Ericsson, uh, does that give them confidence that no one's going to be observing or listening? Well, I, I think they can credibly say, all right, so maybe it's someone else is going to be spying or listening or trying to interrupt them. But 
you can't have a moral equivalence. The way China operates in the world, the way they throw their weight around, I would say is different from Sweden. It's different from Finland. Uh, you know, even if, if one of them is now a NATO country, they're not as willing to risk the corporate reputation and brand by participating in, in undesired activities than, than Huawei is, who has no say in the matter. They're government controlled. I want to come back to the morals and values thing in, in one second, but I want to latch on to something that you said. You said, well, AI can understand it. I want to make sure that we're clear on what that means. Were you saying that uh, the Chinese government is slurping up all this data and building AI models based on it? Or were you saying that maybe AI can help defend against these things by kind of tackling it? I, I'm saying more of the first, but a little bit different than that. What I'm saying is if you've got a, a, a network – uh, you've got you know millions of people, hundreds of millions of billions of transactions and activities. It may be hard to make sense out of it, but if you use a, a even a decent AI system, you can say, all right, let's find these two people seem to be in the same spot in a certain pattern that a person would never recognize and wouldn't be able to find a, a, that needle in the haystack. So you say, okay, this person is going to a place that is known for illicit activities every Thursday afternoon. Okay. Uh, and we know that because we cross-checked it against police officers who also visit that place. And by looking at movements, you know, things that seem meaningless, you can assemble them and start to infer things about your subjects far away with very little data, seemingly, but it's enough to draw some good conclusions. Is there an AI defense to this? That's a good question. I, I haven't heard that question asked before. And, and I got I to tell you, I'm constantly amazed when I do talk to people in that business at things that are being done that you wouldn't have even imagined. Uh, but I can't think of any way that AI would be helping you avoid that kind of a problem. Interesting. Okay. So I want to go back to what you said before about the moral and ethical differences. You spent a lot of time in, in China, uh, obviously, and there's, there is clearly a difference between Chinese and we'll call them Western values and certainly uh, U.S. values. I I'd love for you to tell us what you think they are, those differences, uh, and how, and does the West kind of understand what we're dealing with? So, so difference, are you saying in general between Western values and China values, or here's, here's a distinction I would make. I, I mean, you made the point that, that Siemens and Ericsson wouldn't do these things. It doesn't sound like the U.S. government would do these things. Certainly Lucent didn't do these things. And so, I mean, your argument is that the CCP through Huawei is uh, committing premeditated espionage uh, through a government company and, and doing this at a scale we don't understand. Yeah. So so the first distinction I'll make, and I had to keep catching myself in the book, is I, st I stopped myself from saying Western because Korea and Japan are certainly not Western, but they're free countries. And so I would go back and re-edit myself. Great point. Great say, point. Okay, free countries versus authoritarian or t totalitarian countries. That's really what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I also dismiss the idea that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys in some purest absolute state. You can because what what that leads to you to is being vulnerable to someone saying yes, but didn't the U.S. do this? Did did France sink a, a Greenpeace boat? Well, yes, they did. Did France look at itself and say, what an awful thing was done there and you know, who's responsible, as opposed to saying, well, now the boat's at the bottom of the uh, the bay. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Well well done, mission accomplished. Uh, I think the, the differences are when you have 
any society that's that's a free society, and there's degrees of that too, of course. Uh, you have different cultural norms and values. And China, which is an authoritarian, or, or some would say totalitarian society, has has a, no, none of the checks or balances or constraints on it that any society with representative government and individual liberty and choice would have. And, and, and the entire system is built that way. So th- there is no, uh, companies don't behave for their shareholders. They ultimately behave for the government's desires. Uh, and the government is not answerable to its people, so they have none of the constraints on them. And while you could say, well, the U.S. Uh, is no angel, uh, I heard I heard someone say a, a senior. I, I don't want to name the consulting firm, but a well-known consultant firm, a senior partner, said uh, on a call that I was on, "How can America criticize the Uyghur uh, internment and and uh, work camps when America has its own history of slavery?" And I almost fell out of my chair, saying, "Well, we don't have it anymore. See, if we still had slavery and we said it was wonderful." You'd be right. We're, we're just as bad. We had it 150 years ago. We lost half a million Americans fighting to end it, and we look back on it as a great dark spot in our own history. It was immoral. It was unethical. It was bad. Now that's how we can judge China for cons- for con- uh, currently having that kind of a system in place where they round up minorities, put them in camps. So so that that thinking is what makes a moral ethical difference even if one side isn't all bad the other side isn't all good there's a clear distinction right but you're saying much more than that i mean the assertion in the book and you kind of mentioned it in passing earlier was that the chinese took american technologies and ripped them off right which is that you know lucent and others were manufacturing in china to bring down costs and the chinese ripped them off and so you're alleging not just uh, uh a different moral approach to uh listening into people, but you're alleging theft uh, of not just intellectual property, but business and I'd argue national resilience. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a valid point. Here's, here's how I see that. Uh, people I spoke to, Chinese executives now living in America and now living in Europe, explained to me their view, at least as far as telecom and technology goes. They said, if you don't secure something from your opponents, and it's seized by them. That's on you. I say, yeah, but what, what if it's if it's you own the IP and and you had it in your own servers and you had firewalls and you had security? Well, if the other guy can get through it, then they're they're going to get their hands on it, and that's your problem, not their problem. I think that can only be an acceptable ethic in a culture where, first of all, there's no brand, so you don't have to worry about continuity. Like, well, you aren't you the guys who did this? You're like, yeah, whatever. We're or who we are right now. You don't have the the uh, the capitalist concepts of of a branded company that's there for its shareholders and has its own reputation and 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 character. Uh, and and you also have uh, I don't know to what extent religion comes into it. I want to touch that I, soon, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I had one one person explain to me the difference between guilt and shame. He said China is more of a shame based culture. And countries with religion are more guilt-based, which is if, if you do something and no one knows about it, you still feel guilty because someone's watching and you know who that the, is. The rings of Gyges, Plato's rings of Gyges, right? Yeah. And whereas if you're a shame-based culture, 
if you get caught, that's where the problem is. And I mean, uh, you're saying something. I just want to put a fine point on it. The Chinese executive who spoke to you basically said, "There's no such thing as the rule of law. There's only the rule of strong." And in the rule of the strong, uh, if I can do it, I will. And therefore, law is no protection, neither in doing business with them or doing business in China. Is that, is that do you feel comfortable saying that, that? That's it. Look, Chairman Mao said, and, and Chairman Xi has recently repeated that the rule of law, the rules-based order, basically they say is a sucker's game because we wrote the rules. Now, they don't understand the way those rules were written wasn't by a tyrant forcing them down. It was really a collaborative social contract that was formed for those rules. But she says we are a country of men, not of, of, of law. And they don't, that's not an accusation against them. It's kind of their self-description that it's strength and power and effectiveness is what carries the day, not what's right and what's wrong. That's almost like irrelevant to the process. As you know about me, I like to write books. My hobby is to write books at the intersection of the Bible, uh, modern economy, modern technology. I've written most of them so far in Hebrew, but you know the, the biblical system, and I'd argue the Judeo-Christian ethic, is based on law, meaning the Torah or the Bible is a book of laws. Uh, it also has narratives, but it's fundamentally a book of uh, laws in which the law is handed down by from Sinai, right? It's not uh, a story handed down. It's a set of laws. And these are fundamentally rules-based societies. Why? Because our assumption is in what you called a person-based society, uh, man against man uh, is is a wolf or a beast, uh, to quote the great philosophers. And so um, basically the society you've described is uh, man against man is a, is a beast or a wolf. And uh, – is that is that your assertion uh, that the, there's an unbridgeable gap on some level between uh, rule-based societies, law-based societies versus man-based societies where the rule of law uh, doesn't matter? Well, in my mind, for what it's worth, that feels like the, the generation of the flood, right? Prior to God wiping out the world and the generation of flood, you know, the, the Bible describes that uh, – the great lords, the lords of the land took the women. Uh, they stole from one another and, you know, earth destroyed itself. Well, it, it, if you if you really do see this as, uh, I, I think that may be a calming and civilizing force is this idea. You know, of course, Jewish people don't believe in an afterlife where you're going to be going to heaven or you're going to be burning in hell, at least uh, in my own understanding of, of the of the religion, that's not like the, the certainly the goal isn't always you want to end up in heaven. And how do you how do you live your life today so that the the eternity will be a, the the comfortable one, not the the toasty one? That'll require a different podcast. That's the longest theological discussion of where Judaism has evolved on that. But yeah, uh, now if if you take not only that out of it, but take the idea of some absolute moral rectitude, what is right, what is good, then you really are saying whatever you can have, whatever you can take. That's right and good. And and I've even heard, I spoke to some some ethicists, senior leaders and philosophers, and asked them about what several people were telling me about the differences here on, on ethics. And they, they rejected it. And so I did not include this in the book. But several people said, the philosophy in China, and it seemed credible, is it's unethical to not 
advance the cause for you or your family or your tribe or your town or whatever. So if your competitor has left something unguarded, you're the farmer next door, and you don't take it knowing that you can get away with it, you've been unethical because look at your family may starve now. How dare you just leave that? And the idea like, yeah, but it's it's wrong. The, the view was, well, no, it's wrong to not look out for your own. How is it ethical to let your family starve because the, your neighbor left his some some wheat out on the side of the road un, unguarded? And and I thought it was an interesting assertion. I didn't want to make it because it's it's a pretty big leap. And I don't have the knowledge and the history to say, yes, this is my own experience. I'm willing to say this. Anything I said in the book, I, I backed. By the way, the Talmud has a discussion between Rabbi Akiva and somebody else in which there are uh, two people walking in the desert and there's only one flask of water, which is enough for just one of them. And there's a discussion there. Um, if it's your flask of water, right, for example, it's John's flask of water. Uh, can he drink the whole thing and survive the desert or does he need to split it with his friend? Uh, and ultimately the, the Talmud says that the law is like Rabbi Akiva, that your life comes before your friend's life. And therefore, John, you can drink the water and leave me alone to die in the, in the desert. Um, but there's an opposing opinion, which says you need to share it. And I've often asked myself, well, why is it better that two people die? And I think perhaps it's better that two people die because it shows that we're not just concerned about ourselves. And if we want society to be successful, we need to be concerned almost to the death almost willing to sacrifice or willing to sacrifice their own life about about the other. And that seems to be the antithesis, this Talmudic discussion based obviously on Jewish law, the antithesis uh, of what of what you're describing. But that leads me to like a big global question, which is in a world with two fundamentally different value systems that you've just articulated, how is it possible to manage world affairs? I'll ask it even I'll, I'll, that's a meta question. I'll ask it on a practical question. Would you let any company you're involved with do business in China? Well, you know, yes and no. Uh, first, we can't decouple and say no business in China, not buying anything from them, not selling anything to them. I don't think that 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 would be mutual assured destruction. Wait, wait, but 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 if you had this decision back like 60 years ago before Nixon, right, would you have said don't get involved? If you knew what you knew now back then, we say don't get involved. I either would have said that, so that's absolutely one of the valid possibilities, or I would have said anything besides T-shirts and chicken wings. Do not get involved with China. Okay. If they pull the plug and we have to walk around just wearing our our dress shirts, you know, without a T-shirt underneath it, so be it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get them we'll in Italy. It. We'll get them in Italy. They'll <laughs> be Sri Lanka, softer yeah. and nicer and and uh, more expensive, but <laughs> nothing that matters. Not pharmaceuticals, not electronics, even fun stuff. Because uh, on the one side, you're saying we're becoming dependent on them. The extreme argument for full decoupling is saying you never want to help your enemy. And if you come right out and say China is an enemy, not a rival, then uh, you know the U.S. World War II. You don't want to be buying your steel for your battleships from the company from the country that you're bombing. Uh, you don't want to. You don't want to be giving money to them so they can build up their own factories and create their own weapons to attack you. So if you look at it as true war, I mean, I have the word war in my book for a reason. It's not wireless uh, rivalry. Yeah, it's wireless you wars. think it's a war. I get it. It's a war. They certainly think it's a war. We finally are realizing it's a war. So we sit down at the United Nations at the Security Council with China, we being the United States in this case, um, in countries with what you've now described as two different value systems, one is says I'm in it for me, and the other one says I can be in it for 
a group of us, and that's okay. And I want to live at uh, mutually beneficial outcomes with some of these countries. How is it possible to get anything done? Like the, the ethical boundaries are entirely different. The moral structure is entirely different. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a tough one. I don't think we've wrestled with or had to answer yet, but you're hitting kind of one of the, the key questions. The, the fact is, practically, because I've been asked this question many times, should we fully decouple? You kind of have to do business with them. And that's kind of a, a, a lousy feeling that we're trading with someone who's, you know, credibly accused of organ harvesting of m- minorities in their country uh, to, to bring to wealthy elite who need you know, kidney transplant or something. Why would you deal with this, this entity? Well, because they've got a massive economy and a billion and a half citizens, and to do otherwise would be to cripple ourselves. We, we've really been lured into a financially driven relationship with a country that has very evil rulers uh, putting a very uh, abusive system in place over a billion and a half people. But, you know, use the word we were lured into in the context of the United States. You know, I, I want to I think that the U.S. leadership is not uh, that naive. Maybe I'm wrong, by the way, but I, I, I like to think that. I mean, these are mature adults who, in theory, have been in policy work and in, and in business for, for a long time. And we were lured into... Boy, that strikes me as as somewhere between naive and shameful. Well, here's what the the consensus was that if you can take free market decision making to China in the form of capitalism, and they get to taste it, how do you keep them down on the farm once they've seen how wonderful it is to make business decisions for yourselves? You're going to want to make political and other decisions for yourself, and this is going to liberate China once they have free market capitalism, they certainly can't maintain political authoritarianism. And Bob Zelig gave a famous speech. He was one of the people who helped bring them in. Before he was head of the World Bank, he was a U.S. trade rep. And he brought them in saying, look, they're not the Soviet Union. They're not, uh, they're not trying to defeat America. They're not trying to propagandize against us. They're not seeing themselves locked in a struggle. It all seemed to make perfect sense. Of course, it's precisely what China was doing. But every reasonable person, myself myself included, thought this is going to be the best thing. You bring capitalism to China. And even if they raise themselves up and become more powerful as a free society, who cares? I don't think Americans, I don't think Israelis look at Korea as a horrible threat, even as they rise as a political power because they're a free country. Japan rose and they kicked our auto industry's butt. You know, Toyota and, and, and Nissan, Honda really beat the heck out of the American car industry in Detroit. And the end result was Americans got great cars and the American car industry raised its game. This is rivalry. And, and, and the U.S. had naval bases, by the way, in those countries. So and, exactly. Before. But even before. And, 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 and but I just don't see that. I don't see Korea and Japan or Germany as a rising threat, even as they become powerful. And people say, oh, this is the uh, uh, rising powers inevitably go to war against each other. I I think that's nonsense because as Germany becomes the economic engine of Europe, I don't see us saying, well, we're going to have to stop that. We have to thwart them because it's a free country. It's a free society and that's okay. 
By the way, it was a bad economy that caused Germany to go to war before World War II. We should, I mean, I don't know if that caused them to go to war, but it certainly was a driver. But I, I want I want to flip this uh, a little bit, which is maybe perhaps uh, it's good to keep your ideological enemies close. Maybe it's good to keep the people you don't have shared values with close, at least through a commercial relationship, because that enables, it's uh, the right way to say this, enables us to manage potential conflict over time. There's no question when you, this was the original argument that trade brings interdependency and interdependency brings peace. You don't bomb the country that provides all your insulin. You, you know, you, you don't want to take out the electrical infrastructure for the company that's buying your entire farming output for that part of the world because you're just hurting yourself. And this is the idea that trade globalism brings peace and it's true if you have a liberal worldview that says we're all in this together. All anyone wants is to get richer and happier and healthier and thrive. And I'm of the belief that there's a handful of countries, literally you can count on one hand, that would rather see their own people impoverished if it gave them more geopolitical power over the rest of the world. You got China, North Korea, you got you know Cuba, Russia. Iran. Perhaps Iran would make it towards the top of that list saying we'll lose a lot if we can achieve some ideological uh, goal that's unconnected to the welfare of our people. Do you think, by the way, there's a dichotomy in these cases between the leaders and the people? I'm pretty convinced in Iran there's a dichotomy between the leaders and the people, even though I'm far from an expert. Do you think there's a dichotomy between the leaders and the people? Or is it so, or is it so kind of morally different and ethically different in China that there's no dichotomy? No, look. China, there's different cultural mores in China and values, and and you'll, you'll be probably be well suited to bring on an expert on China, and there's plenty of them uh, to talk about that specific issue. I want to be careful not wade into those waters too deeply, but what I will say is that all human beings, regardless of their cultural values, do have some common things they want. They want this is tautological. They want to have whatever they want to have. They want to be able to do what they want to do. They want to be free to make choices. Now, some you could say want to have the government make decisions for them. Well, yeah, as long as those decisions are what make them happy. And if they don't make them happy, they can say, can I do something different? Are you sure about that? I mean, like, I'll give, an exa- I'll give you a biblical example, and then I'll give you modern examples, right? So a biblical example is that after the Israelites are set free from Egypt, many of them want to go back to the slavery of Egypt because it was just easier. No mental, over, no mental taxation or or overhead and, you know, your food is provided or, or whatever it is. And even in modern times, I'll use my own co-religionists. There are many ultra-Orthodox Jews who go to the grand rabbi and say, uh, hey, tell me what to do. And they tell them what to do in just about everything in life. And that's what they do. And it reduces the mental overhead. And, you know, I'm sure there are, uh, I can point to other religions and other, and other people who just prefer that, you know, decision-making be taken out of their hands. So maybe they don't. Well, you- you know, maybe they don't, but I think it's about one generation long, that attitude. If you take a human being who hasn't been brought up in that kind of an environment that's led them to a dependency and a passivity, as, a, as, a, as an animal, any person brought up will want to have what, what they want. Now, they may want to have government involved and take hard decisions off their hands and, and do that. And some that may be an individual, you know, everyone's on the spectrum for personal determination versus uh, being kind of taken care of in a way. 
But I don't think anyone wants to say I'm subject to the whims of some bureaucrat somewhere in, in the capital city who's going to make me study this or work here, even if I don't want to. Um, so Milton Friedman is famous for saying that free markets create free countries, basically. I, that's a misquote, but that's roughly the gist of it. Do you think that's true? Well, <laughs> the, the, the China experiment may give the lie to that. Uh, yeah. everybody I don't think it's true for true. what it's worth. Yeah, my, I, I, for years, haven't thought that's true. By the way, for me, it's biblical also in this regard. You know, until you were free from Egypt, there wasn't freedom in the world. And so you couldn't have your free markets. But why do you think it's not true? Just because of China? Well, it's not, not just China, but it certainly is the biggest example of what has been, for the most part, a free market. And, and the government's got its hand in things and so on. But all governments do. Uh, there's no true, true free markets. People thought you can't have free market and have a controlled authoritarian government and China proved, well, look, here it is. You can argue about why, but you can't argue about whether that's the case. And so I think that gives uh, the counter argument proof to it. I want to say something personal. I, I read your book and I thought you were brave. Uh, were you ever worried when you wrote the book that someone would do something to you or this is something that would rub a lot of people with a lot of power the wrong way? Uh, yes and no. Uh, first of all, you know, I've had a good career basically pursuing what I wanted to, to be a moral and ethical business career. Now, don't get me wrong. I was in my career to make a salary, to, to advance my own uh, role within the companies I worked for. But I think business is a very moral and ethical thing. I took over a job at Lucent. 100 people, the global channels department. And on day one or two, they said, oh, you have 100 people, but you got to lay off 70 of them. This is when the wheels were starting to come off. And I said, uh, well, 70, it's probably 20 of them ought to go. And then, you know, when you're cutting 70, you're going to be laying off good, hardworking, honest people who have made their performance numbers. They consider that unethical uh, by management, not to do the layoff, but to get to a place where you have to do that layoff. So I tried to do things ethically, but this was a self-directed career I had. And I say that compared to the people I worked with lately, since the book, who were military and intelligence and public service people, mm -hmm. put themselves in danger to do the right thing for good causes. So I, when I wrote the book, when it became clear the turn, I thought there is some risk, there is some danger, but boy, it's trivial trivial compared to the FBI officers I worked with and the special operations guys I talked to who were actually having people shoot at them all the time, every day, knowingly. Now, now China, I'll give you one other twist that gave some more comfort to me. China tends to, tends to deal with foreign nationals in their own home countries through bribery and coercion. Iran has some different approaches that they use. <laughs> Fair. I, and I did not write a book going after Iran because uh, that wasn't my topic. I tell you, if I had, there's a lot more uh, of, a, of a pucker factor there because uh, that's a country that's demonstrated willingness to physically harm people all over the world. China, you know, uh, the, the epilogue, you know, I don't know if how many people get to the epilogue of a book. I talk about how uh, while I was still working on the manuscript, I got a call from a major recruiter at one of the big firms saying, do you want to see it on the board of a Chinese state-owned telecom company? <laughs> I'm like, okay, good. That's how you guys deal with things. You either try to get a compromising video or you bribe somebody or you work the ego angle. None of those are going to work on me. But uh, thanks for the phone call. You just made it into my book. 
and she's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about TikTok for a second. So a number of countries want to ban TikTok. Uh, our mutual friend Jacob Helberg uh, has been really pushing for this in the United States. What do you think about that? And you have children, right? Yes. Would you let them be on TikTok? Do you let them be on TikTok? Well, you know, as as, as anyone who has children knows, what I let them do has very little to do with what they do. Uh, my son is 20, my daughter is 23 now, 24. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is, my son uh, is doing work with, uh, he's, he's still in college, but internship with the federal government in a very secure facility. He can't have TikTok. Okay. Uh, and he knows. I warned him. When he first visited the place, he still had it on his phone. I said, you know you're on a list because TikTok tracks your location and you got into a place that most people can't get into. And now you've, their AI has flagged you as one of the 100 million people that's been in that. Of the 100 million people, one of the 5 or 10 or 100 people have been in that facility. So he's got it off his phone now. My daughter, I don't think she uses it either. Uh, and they are... Uh, very wary because it is tracking them, seeing who they meet with, where they go. Again, this is the AI tool. And building a dossier on 350 million Americans. And, and so should America ban TikTok? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yes. By the way, I agree. I, I can't say that my kids listen to what I say either. The good news is, by the way, they don't listen to my podcasts either or read my books. So they won't <laughs> hear me saying this. That's the good news. But... Uh, I've told them all for years and years and years, do not get on TikTok. Like I haven't invested in China either over time. And uh, it worries me. I, you know, I, I think if, if you, if it's not free, you don't own it. That's why I don't invest. And I, I think, you know, certainly now having read your book, um, but even before it, it the, the kind of different set of values there without judging it, it just, it, you know, doesn't work for me. Yeah, TikTok has two insidious things that it, can do one of them is it changes who you are and that's absolute that you can't argue that it's it pushes content to you deliberately and with an agenda and restricts content from you deliberately with an agenda so it is changing what you know and who you are and how you spend your time that's you can't argue that what, by the way what do you think are the most pernicious or sociological things that they're pushing on american teens today well you know, it's hard to say that they're making American teens vacuous. Uh, you know, that's a pretty easy thing to do. <laughs> but um, but I, I think part of what they're doing is pushing such foolish idiocy. Now, look, that's what kids, all the old crotchety adults say, uh, the kids today, it's such idiotic, idiotic things are doing. Back in my day, we used to, you know, be doing the frug and, and you know, and and whatever the hula hoop uh, in the previous the generation, hoop, you know, you go yeah. back to the 30s, you know, or 23 skidoo, whatever. So you know, that's back when things are normal. Now they're weird. So <laughs> so I don't want to you know play that game here. But the constant constant flow of addictive vacuousness. Whereas you know, when I was a kid, it, you had to wait till Saturday morning cartoons to turn off your brain completely, and now you can keep it in that idling mode all the time. And I'm sure every generation would have if they had the same technology available. Do you, do you think they're fomenting some of the social maladies of the United States through TikTok? I, I think someone should be fired if they're not. Someone in the Chinese Politburo, if they're not using that tool to push people into the streets when sometimes they're saying, what are we here for again? I don't know. This is the bad thing that's going on. Let's all go out there and, and turn out for it. That is a has to be 
tapped right now by China because it weakens America, it weakens unity, whether it's racial or class or any other divisiveness in America that weakens us as a country. Wokeism? Like when I heard Putin talk about wokeism, I saw some, you know, my head started turning. Maybe the Chinese are fomenting that too. Well, if, if you believe, you take a country, and I said, look, we had slavery in this country uh, 150 years ago. It was a terrible mm -hmm. thing. If you believe that defines who we are today and that we're a terrible country, then who's going to go to war to defend a terrible country? Who's going to defend a place that's awful and abusive and racist and sexist and transphobic? If you believe, and the social media kind of plays this up, if you believe we're an awful place, then, then you're not worth defending. And China would love nothing more than Americans thinking, you know, we're not a great place. Well, what are we here for? So for all of my career in business, we said business and politics don't mix or for a large percentage of it, right? And now it feels on multiple levels, business and politics not only do mix, but must mix. Like technology has become so geopolitical that it is uh, not just inevitable, but a must. That you need to be thinking geopolitically when you start a business. How would you respond to that? Well, there there is a an inextricable link, I think, between business and politics, and that creates a lot of problems that I wouldn't pretend to have a solution to. The fact that Government has to start regulating free enterprises like this. It's true, they do, and they're not very good at it. None of, none of the governments are good at it, and so it's going to be badly done. Even the best-intentioned, best-educated legislators or elected leaders of any kind are going to screw this up. They don't understand it. They don't have the tools. So, you know, it's kind of the, the inefficiencies that are the, kind of the cost of doing business, Uh no, but it's more than that right now, right? So, for example, I need to take into account, for argument's sake, if I'm Google, that part of the world market's close to me, China. I need to take into account if I'm uh, one of the investors in, in ByteDance or TikTok that the U.S. may shut it down. Uh, more than that, by the way, you know, it, it, with Congress's, just to use the U.S. as an example, increased interest in uh, now AI before that social media. You know, there's there's real risk right now, and you need to know the geopolitical landscape. That wasn't the case except for antitrust for many years. Yeah, well, you see cases, I just saw an interesting case where Chinese are fleeing uh, Hong Kong for the UK using yeah. certain identity papers, not quite a passport. And Hong Kong Shanghai Bank is blocking them from taking their money out at the direction of the CCP. They came under attack saying, you're collaborating with this authoritarian government that's penalizing these citizens who are trying to move into the UK and not letting them take their own money out. And the bank said, the local law says this is the paperwork that authorizes us to release the money, and the paperwork hasn't been provided, and we can't break the law of the country we're operating. So I said, okay, well, then you shouldn't operate there. Okay, so Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank, get out of Hong Kong and Shanghai, uh, and maybe that is the answer, but you say, is that really a moral, horrible thing they've done? If, if the local law said you have to round up the people and send them off to an internment camp, you could see them saying, okay, we're out of this country. But Would the they? government, you know, but, but what I'm saying is the government did say you're not going to release their money if they try to leave. Oh, well, that's right. what the law says. So that's not some horrific violation of humanity that they're engaging in. They're following the legal laws, you know, the, the legal rules there about money transfers. In, 
but, but I want I want to push harder here. So, how involved should politics politician be in what's going on in in global private digital enterprise right now? But, but I think again, governments, the EU, Congress are leaning in hard. Right. Uh, it's hard for me to understand how the EU blocked the uh, Microsoft uh, acquisition of Activision Blizzard. It doesn't fit under any real antitrust thing, but they did. Uh, I, and my sense is is that, and I'll say this uh, bluntly, uh, we used to think of business as money, but technology is actually power. Uh, and you see that in TikTok and you see it in Facebook uh, and you see it in AI right now. And so power is politics. And it's geopolitics. So have we become kind of – have we all become kind of state-controlled or pushed enterprises on some level? It's a pretty disturbing thought. There's definitely, I think, some truth to that. And it's one of the – again, it's inevitable. It has to happen to some extent. And to the extent the government gets involved in business, they destroy value, they destroy wealth, they make things worse off. But sometimes it's necessary because if you don't do it, you can have some very dangerous things happening that, that didn't used to be the case. People pretty much could live your own life. You go to your job, you're, you're either producing your own food or you're buying it from the farmer in town, and you're, you're working your local job. Technology has created power of in corporate interests, which are sort of like government. I mean, I think Google is more powerful than all but a handful of governments in the world in mm -hmm. the influence they have and the information they control, and, and Amazon and, and Microsoft, a handful of companies, have enormous power. And that's a political kind of a uh, a thing, not just uh, economic power. Do, do countries need to develop their own technology infrastructure? Like, does everyone need like a national company like Huawei, like the Chinese did? Uh, I mean, the US doesn't even have one now. In reality, it's got like Cisco a little bit, but it's, it's the European companies, kind of Siemens uh, and Nokia provide a large percentage of the, you know, Western telecom equipment. Is that, is this, is this a good idea? Yeah, economies of scale mean that they can't if they try. Uh, it, it's not clear the U.S. is big enough to to put together a telecom equipment manufacturer. This is the United States economy. The world's biggest yeah. economy may not have the scale, given the presence already of Huawei, Nokia, and Ericsson to, to create its own. So you're not going to get one coming out of France uh, or coming out of uh, Guyana or coming out of South Africa. It's just not going to happen because... The world can maybe uh, competitively support half a dozen of these, and and uh, the the 10th or 20th one is going to be an inferior product at an inferior higher price. But communications infrastructure is critical infrastructure for countries right now. I mean, it's absolutely critical infrastructure. We wouldn't outsource our water supply in most cases if we could, or actually certainly wouldn't want to be energy dependent, but yet we are – the United States is – and Israel, by the way, is telecom dependent. Yeah, absolutely telecom dependent. And so the question is, can you secure your own network? Uh, and and I think more importantly, rather than trying to secure it against a malevolent vendor, you want to go with a more trusted vendor. I don't look at the Finnish as being a real threat to world freedom yeah. and security. I don't look at the Swedes, you know, Ericsson and, and, and Nokia as that. American companies, they've done some bad things like everyone everywhere, but they're not fundamentally there to screw people on behalf of some uh, malevolent government authority. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just say every now and then there was this uh, program that I think from WikiLeaks that NSA was intercepting shipments of servers, American private companies, 
and loading software or hardware in them before they continued on the way out around the world. So they had some great uh, eavesdropping technology. Those American companies were furious, furious about this. They weren't like, hey, doing our part to help America. They're saying, you're screwing with our business. We need to be trusted. You guys really hurt us here. And hopefully that doesn't still happen. So, you know, your your view of uh, uh, Ericsson or Nokia, you know, the the Scandinavian countries in this regard is that they're less likely to be malevolent, right? That is what I would call a, a um, can't find the word, parva, we would say in kind of uh, Yiddish, uh, which is, you know, neither meat nor dairy, uh, which means, you know, kind of a lukewarm way to describe it. You didn't say find countries with businesses that are values aligned, is that because you think I can't find countries that are values aligned or I can't bet on that or because – and therefore we shouldn't even try or is it really we should find countries or suppliers that are values aligned but uh, – and maybe we have to work hard to get there. But um, you know that that will take decades. No, that's a good correction you're making there and actually it's a much more accurate way of describing it. It's not just that you can trust – say, the, the, the Finns or the Swedes to not try to, you know, exfiltrate data against our, our wishes from, from their networks they've installed. But the point that you're making is a great one. Their fundamental values are less offensive to us. If we find ourselves as a result of an abuse from our network vendor being subject to the Finnish desires and whims in the world, then, you know, they're pushing us towards eating lutefisk or, or, uh, now, something, it, it's much better than if it's China. Aquavit. They're <laughs> drinking Aquavit, sure. China, if they, if we get pushed towards Chinese CCP values because of the presence of their networks, that's much worse than if we are, you call it what you want, abused or taken advantage of by uh, European vendors. You don't want any of them to do it. But if there is, uh, if, if the US is using its these networks, you know, for intelligence gathering, it's less worrisome because there's not a moral equivalence. When House Speaker McCarthy was in Israel and speaking in the Knesset, the parliament here, um, in what was a heartwarming and actually fantastic, I thought, speech, he spent two sentences, I would say, warning the Israeli Knesset uh, about cooperation with China uh, and Chinese investment in Israeli infrastructure and a Chinese acquisition or investment in Israeli technology companies. If you were uh, the chief of staff of Speaker McCarthy, what would you tell uh, Israel about that, number one? And number two is, why do you think, despite what the U.S. is clearly warning countries in the Middle East, and I include Israel and the UAE in that, they're still hedging their bets on China right now? Yeah, well, there's a great allure to China. You have cheap stuff, good equipment, well-supported, and you may not be able to get that from alternatives. But what McCarthy's staff should, and, and from what I understand, probably did share with their their counterparts in, in Middle Eastern countries, including Israel, is that this is not business. You think you're in a business transaction with China to buy equipment, Everything there is geopolitical in origin and intent. And 
people say, oh, we're playing checkers, they're playing chess. That's a bad description. We're, we're playing chess or checkers or go or whatever, and they're zeroing in their mortars to take out our positions. That's how different it is. When they buy a company, they're not doing it for the return. They're doing it for the authority and the power and the leverage they're going to have over a strategic entity, in this case, Israel. By the way, would you say that about all Chinese entrepreneurs or just ones where the Chinese government decides they have to be involved or you think it's all just one giant industrial technology complex? China's involved in every company. Everyone, if you're big, you've got the big on-site CCP office. And I've spoken to the consultants who say we would advise Huawei or whoever, here's what you need to do in that market. And the business executives say, okay, fine, I'll go down the hall and get this approved. And he said, we'd walk down the hall There'd be a guy in an office with a picture of Mao on the wall, and he didn't understand anything about a business, but he was the guy who got to say yay or nay. Mm -hmm. And if you're a smaller entrepreneur, they may not have that office there, but they, they see what happened to Jack Ma, the richest, most innovative, successful entrepreneur in the country, maybe in the world. And he made one speech questioning the approach to regulating digital banking, and he's lucky they didn't cut his head off. They just banished him and ended him, and they, they spent between half a trillion and a trillion dollars to send that message, canceling his IPO, with all the ramifications of what they did to him. Every entrepreneur knows what awaits them if they don't play the game. I, wa I want to read this to you and then uh, get your response to it. So over the last few years, China's kind of come in early into small deals in Israel, uh, later buying controlling stake, often at exorbitant prices that entrepreneurs can't, can't reject. Um, they bought electric power stations from Israel Electric Corporation at, to China Harbor. They paid a half a billion dollars, more than twice the other bidders. Uh, Israeli government officials estimate that in Israel alone, Chinese corporations have invested in or accessed projects worth nearly $15 billion. In the last 15 years, Chinese companies purchased or won tenders on Tanuva, Israel's largest dairy producer. They own it now, the Chinese, by the way. They dug the Carmel Tunnels. Uh, they built the Ashdod and Haifa seaports and parts. It's now been stopped at the Tel Aviv uh, light rail. They tried to buy a bank and insurance company, but those didn't materialize because of the government stopping it. How, how do you react to that? Well, you ask, why is China buying these? Uh, let me ask you a question. Why did China buy Grindr? I don't know if you know oh, that. Yeah, Grindr, the, the, the uh, gay and lesbian app. Gay and lesbian dating app. Yeah. yeah. Why do you suppose they bought that? The CEO, the Chinese CEO, is against gay marriage and didn't approve yeah. of the lifestyle. They can compromise a lot of people like that, I would bet. They've got a lot of photographs of every closeted Republican congressman or executive or whatever. And you know they were finally forced to sell it back, but they've got three years of every transaction. And you know it's on file and been loaded into the AI systems. Why would they do that? It didn't make economic sense. Why did they buy these Israeli companies? Some of them may have been profitable and a wise purchase, but that's gravy. That's irrelevant to why this is happening. It's all strategic. Before we wrap up with the kind of uh, final questions, I want to ask two questions. In, in your view, how important is religion or a religious basis at the kind of baseline of society uh, in order to keep society on moral tracks? Well, kind of get back to that earlier discussion. If you, if you, you, you can be... Uh, non-religious, you know, agnostic or atheistic, and lead a very moral, uh, proper, positive life. And, and, I th and I don't know that there's any distinction between those who, who are and aren't as far as whether they're good and moral and, and honest people. 
societally, though, as in culture, when there's this idea of something greater, this is just in my opinion, anything greater than what you're looking at and what's right in front of you, it does create this deep-rooted obligation to do the right thing. And this is one of those things where there's there's cultural values that I may... People say, oh, this is nonsense. This is stupid. Why do you do this? You're right. It is nonsense. This is stupid. Why do you have to do that? But when everyone does that, somehow society seems to thrive and live, have a better environment. And so I think that idea of this uh, supreme other being that has a presence and, and is sees what is happening leads to better behavior and I think better societies. Do, do you have religious practice in your life? Uh, I'm Jewish. My wife is Catholic. We raised our kids with religion, which consisted of whatever the best local house of worship was near us who had the best preacher, pastor, or whatever it was, we would take them. Um, and we thought it was important for them to have some kind of a, of a, not just spiritual, but a religious upbringing. And they're off on their own. Uh, you know, I, I have a son who, who, uh, would go to, goes to Chabad Friday nights at his college and was confirmed and baptized. So, uh, you know, he's got a pretty good range, and I think he just likes the free wine that the uh, <laughs> I was gonna say provide. Friday, <laughs> Friday night kiddish exactly. makes you come and drink the wine. What 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 does telecom look like in ten to twenty years? Like, at, play this movie forward for me. Where are we going to end up with telecom infrastructure, given where we're at right now? Yeah, I think there's some big big changes. That's hardly a bold statement to make, but. Uh, in, in writing Wireless Wars, I got to interview a guy named Marty Cooper, and I actually met him recently. He invented the cell phone, you know, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, whatever. He's wow. 94, I think, right now. Wow. And, and you know, one of these guys, sharp as a tack, uh, you'd peg him at about 70 years old right now if you didn't know better. And he said, you know, sure, Internet of Things, that's all well and good. We need to look to the next generation where it'll be the Internet of People. Just connect, not things to things, connect people to people. And I think what you will have, and this is not science fiction leap, I think you're already saying it, is whatever you're thinking, whatever you're doing will be communicated transparently and meaningfully to whoever you want it to be. Maybe some people you don't want it to be. And there'll be a great efficiency gain and there'll be cultural and societal changes that this drives. I do think there's going to be profound improvements in network security and privacy. As I'm talking to companies now that have technology that looks to be unbreakable, mathematically, theoretically unbreakable. So even quantum computing won't be able to hack it. And we were worried, what does this mean for the world? And I think one of the things it means is that there's going to be a personal liberty and freedom that arises from this. You can communicate without worrying about it being intercepted and eavesdropped on. I think that'll be a great advancement. So it'll be outside the current telecom infrastructure. It'll be riding on top of it, but literally unbreakable, even by the worst, most malevolent uh, authorities who have their hands on things. For what it's worth, we have a uh, stealth investment in a company that, you know, kind of communicates from your brain to somebody else's. So uh, I, I hope you're right about that. Um, I like that internet of people to people. I hope they're a little nicer to each other when it's just people to people than when we talk on social networks. Yeah, yeah me too. And there's maybe be some accountability too. Uh, you know, I've, I've not been a big fan of Twitter. It's not a polite place. 
I actually do like Twitter, by the way, uh, and it's not a polite place because I I, I learn a lot uh, on there from from people. I had Russ Roberts on here, and we were we were talking about that. I, I but I am a giant believer in meeting people face to face. My partner and I were sitting talking on uh, Tuesday of last week, and he told me that it's hard to get people to come to board meetings in person anymore. I mean, get your butt on a damn plane. That's the job in venture capital, and that should be our job as people. You, you've got to feel people in the flesh. And I'm, I'm sorry we're not in the same studio because that kind of belies what I just said right now. But uh, it's, it's you got to get on the plane. But you and I met in person, by the way, in the Senate office building in Washington D.C. And this uh, podcast would not have come about had both of us not traveled to this meetup at the Senate uh, on the U.S. and China. And I think. We got to get people face to face because, to your point, there's there's uh, you know more shame and less divisiveness in these face to face reactions. You get to really know people. Hey, humans are social creatures and pack animals, and that's deep, deep in the DNA. You can't fix that with Zoom or or any other technology. You have to physically be there to have the full human interactive experience. I'm I'm a big believer in that. All right, so I'm going to ask you a few wrap up questions. Uh, what motivates you to get out of bed every morning and kind of what's your morning ritual? Yeah, so what motivates me every day now, this is the best, really this is the best time of my life. I'm helping inform and educate and drive American policymakers and businesses about this important issue with the China threat. And and that is, boy, I can't, I can't tell you how happy I am doing that. Morning ritual is just, my wife and I go to the gym about a mile away. We start every day with an hour workout. Her workout's a lot more rigorous than mine, but you know, <laughs> I put I put on the headphones. I listen to your book, uh, thank you, and which which is is actually good to work out to. I find it's uh, you, you can think about it and when you're on the bike and so on, and uh, and I've been enjoying that almost. Oh, but I hope it doesn't slow your pace down. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it it doesn't. Uh, and and that's that's how I get every day going. Though it's a good way to start. All right, uh, what. What makes you human or what makes you vulnerable? Me personally. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I would have, uh, I would have made a, a lousy soldier because I do take things very, uh, much to heart. I am not good with human suffering and, and tragedy. And it's, I find it very hard to ignore myself when I am up close and personal with that. You know, I, I don't even think even being a police officer where you deal with human tragedy all the time, that would be tough for me. That's uh, definitely something I'm, I would say, ultra sensitive to. In a hundred years, when they write the biography of John Pelson, what's the title going to be? <laughs> biography of John Pelson, a hundred years. Uh, yeah, that that's a tough one. I, I had enough trouble coming up with the title to my own book, which was originally <laughs> get, I was going to call it "Compromised," and then some guy named Peter Stroke at the FBI came out with his book named "Compromised." Oh yeah, and, it's, but that, it that was other, yeah, it has other connotations. Exactly. Uh, I, I think my bi- my biography hopefully is going to say, "Here's a, a regular working stiff, who at fifty five, <laughs> uh, this is maybe the long subtitle that you have to put on every book now, right?" <laughs> uh, actually became uh, m- made a difference in in the way things were looked at globally. That's going to be really small font to get that all in there. Yeah, I don't know what the title of the book is going to be, but but 
having met you and and read your book, I'll, I'll add uh, a couple of things. I, I think one is it should be called Brave Insights, for what it's worth, because I thought it was uh, super insightful. And again, I come back to the same thing, which is, you know, I've been reading about China. I've never invested in China for a lot of the reasons outlined in your book. But I thought the way you strung together the narrative and this kind of dawning as I flip page after page in your book saying, oh, my, this is premeditated and so well thought through. This is three-dimensional chess being played uh, by China and – we need to develop, and this is kind of a uh, you know something I want to encourage you to do. We need to develop a new cadre of of CEOs and and and, and global diplomats who are well tuned into how you play three D chess uh, because it's a complex world and who understand technology a lot better than so many of our elected officials seem to do that. And I, man, if you spent the next twenty five fifty years of your life doing that, I think you could make the world a different place. So you know, thank you for your service. Well, I, I appreciate that. And as I said, I, I feel while there is some modicum of risk more than in a traditional business job, uh, I'm so happy to be doing it. And when I meet with these guys, I'm doing it more and more who know when they go out there for their daily job, someone's literally going to be shooting at them. Those are the guys that uh, you, you have to admire. So to take you know this one little crumb and say, okay, at this stage of my career, I may tick off some some people. Hopefully they'll just, you know, up the offer to bribe me and I get to uh, publish a new <laughs> epilogue for my next book. Amazing. Well, John, thanks for joining. And to all our listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And by the way, you can also find the podcast on YouTube where you can see John and my smiling faces as well and not just listen while you're running on the treadmill. So thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for being with me. I really love doing this, Michael. Michael.